This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I am joined today, and I'm joined as always by my good friend, my business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen, which you're going to sound good today, but I'm kind of curious how many coughs and hacking and phlegm collections I have to edit out and how many I keep in. It's true. I am on all the drugs right now. I am I am on a cough suppressant. I am on a mucus thinner. Yeah. I am on just simply ibuprofen because I cough so much and so hard yeah. that my head hurts and my ribs hurt and my back hurts. <laughs> the question is, why are you um, taking all that medication and injecting it into your penis? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you got a chuckle out of that. <laughs> This is the struggle is real, Joshua, and you get a chuckle out of it. I tell you, yeah. straight up the I shoot it straight up the pee pee hole. Mm-hmm. That's it, straight up. Yeah, sometimes I feel it hit me on the back of my eyeballs. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a serious business. So yeah, I was in LA on wonderful business last week. Had mm-hmm. a blast. Got to see a ton of our old school. Uh, uh, single cast nation supporters. Yeah, early, early members. Early members. And uh, and then got to see the, the building of um, the retail, uh, enthusiasm for retail out there. Yeah, really tremendous. Unfortunately, by the end of the week, I was starting to not feel so great. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, I've been using my, my voice all day, every day, and all evening, every evening. Um, and my, my vocal cords are probably just worn out. And... Uh, and then, no, I got really quite sick. And uh, I got home on Friday night, hugged my family, said hello, and went straight to bed for the weekend. It was it was a pretty miserable return home. And uh, I thought I was starting to feel better. And then, uh, nope, it made a little second comeback on me. So in the interest of getting through our season two closing yeah. episode... Yeah, this is it. I I ramped up all the drugs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't I don't quite feel like I feel obviously you'll remember when we did the live Westland recording back oh. in March yeah, of yeah. twenty eighteen. An allergy attack or something. Exactly. That was allergies, and I took more Benadryl than I probably should have. <laughs> and <laughs> That's right, you were tripping your tits off. Yeah, so the thing yeah. for me, Joshua, is <laughs> is I don't take any medication, none at all. I I avoid it, you know, ironically, like the plague. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I would much rather just wait for this version of the plague to pass through me. But between my wife saying, Jason, you have to take the medicine, and uh, knowing that I couldn't just cough, splutter all the way through this episode, mm-hmm. I... Uh, yeah, I've upped it. So I'm I'm very sensitive to medication. Normally, a dram of whiskey is all the medicine that I take. Like a good Scotsman, like a good Scots lad, <laughs> and and um, and so yes. So hopefully, I'm not tripping uh, off my uh, balls like I was in Seattle back in March. 
but I, I do. I feel a little funny. I feel a little tingle in my fingers. I don't know if that's normal. Put it away. Zip your pants back up. <laughs> well, it's time for another dose. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that you're feeling sick. I rarely, 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 if if ever, get sick. But when I do, I I definitely have a man cold. I you know I need to be taken care of. I need uh, just I need to be pampered and looked after and I get really sad and cranky because that never happens there's 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 you know there's no love there you know it's get over it get on with your life yeah I don't need to be pampered or taken care of I'm, I'm a big fan of being left alone in the corner to just sleep Mm, no, I, I need that. I, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't bode well for me. I get to a dark place if that happens, Jason. <laughs> if you're left alone, in a, well, that's true. You are you are a DD boy, so you do like your <laughs> stimulants. Uh-huh. So you had mentioned it. This is the last episode of season two. We We start season three in a few weeks, but this is... This is it. It's true. It's true. And I'm I'm interested that you said we start season three in a few weeks. Wouldn't it be in a couple of weeks since we drop new episodes every two weeks? Are we changing our schedule here, Josh? No, no, no. Are we no, confusing we're... our dear listeners? So so here's the thing. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. We are recording exactly a week before this mailbag episode drops, which so... Three weeks before season three, episode one starts. And when I was younger, me and my old friend George Crodell came up with a system of words that equal various numbers. So, right, one is one, right? A couple is two. Everybody knows these. But we have devised this plan where you've got one, a couple, a few, some, many, a lot, and that gets us up to seven. And I think, I think, uh, I don't remember what eight was, but those words, if we said those words, we knew exactly what number they represented. How old were you? Uh, 24. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say Eight or eight or ten years old, somewhere around. Oh, there. okay. This this is yeah. fully acceptable. No, no, no. This okay. wasn't like last <laughs> okay. week or anything. <laughs> and then we had a sleepover with this guy, and yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We watched Breakfast Club. Did the whole thing. <laughs> At least it wasn't Fight Club. What Fight Club? Exactly. That's the only appropriate <laughs> response. Um, here, I want to say something. Oh, god, god. And since it's our podcast, I feel like I can. <laughs> This this closing of season two gives me occasion to mm. reflect. And when you and I, mm-hmm. and, and a, like a lot of our ideas, we started talking to one another about the, the possibility of us starting a podcast. Mm-hmm. At about the same time, the other person had had the thought. <laughs> yes. It was, it was a real funny kind of moment. And, and I've, I've said it before, but it's, it's always well worth repeating. When we started, and a bit like our blogs, I did not, in my wildest imagination, imagine 
we would have listeners. Mm. And yeah. when we f- when we first started recording the podcast, it was more just re- just literally recording of a podcast, just yeah. yep. meeting somebody, quick interview, ask some questions, get it done. Really, it was just you and I having a chance to do what we always do, which is talk to whiskey folk about whiskey. Yeah. And as one year has become two years, and as we travel around and as we receive emails, Mm -hmm. which is why this is apropos for this episode, Mm -hmm. I'm just floored when either I meet somebody at a tasting for the very first time and they say, love the podcast. Love it. I've got I've got all my friends listening. Yeah. It's yeah. just it's tremendous. Or we get an email and we'll we'll read a, uh read one of them a little later uh, on as well. Where somebody who I've been tangentially aware of mm-hmm. knows and loves our podcast. Yeah. And it's and it's kind of like, okay, I don't know the name. Oh, okay, I know where you were, I know where I was. Wow, we've We've actually tangentially been, you know, side by side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you've been listening to the podcast this whole time as well. <laughs> like the 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 very real sense that I now have of our listeners, our listenership, our listener base, it it just it fills me with absolute joy that that when you and I are are planning for a, a future interview mm-hmm. or I'm meeting somebody for the first time and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be introducing this person to our listeners. Yeah. The, I, the perfect example of that, Vienna and Susan from last episode mm-hmm. with Southern Distilling Company. I got to meet them within a very short amount of time. I was interviewing them for the podcast. Our listeners got to meet them. Like I'm, I'm thinking about our listeners often mm-hmm. and, and we've said it when we've been in Scotland and we're driving around and we've got the lapel mics on and, and you're screaming in the passenger seat because, you know, I'm, I'm overtaking somebody driving 30 in a 70 zone. Um, so you, you're driving 70 in a 30 zone and you can't get over the fact that I scream because you're overtaking people on a single track road. Okay. All right. Yep. Continue. <laughs> I, we, we talk about it, right? We, we think about the listeners who'll be listening to those exploits yeah. uh, of ours in and around Scotland. So as we close out season two, I do sincerely thank our listeners yeah. for tuning in every couple of weeks listening to the latest episode, listening to our silliness, understanding that, you know, we cover some interesting, factual, useful pieces of information, but we're also just having a blast doing this. Yeah, it's it, it amazes me that we just press record on conversations that we would normally have anyway. And somehow people find that interesting. Mm-hmm. And and enjoy it and want to share it with their friends and tell other people about it. And yeah, I'm forever grateful. And like you had said, it, it reminds me of when we were bloggers, where all of a sudden you know, we would get a thousand people a day hitting our blog, which, you know, close to 10 years ago, or actually a little over 10 years ago now, there really weren't 
many of us whiskey bloggers. And so we were the source along with, you know, a few others who, who still blog to this day while we don't. But it blew my mind that people actually gave a crap of what our opinion was on a whiskey. And now they give a crap on just, you know, eavesdropping in on, on our conversations. It's, it's, you know, I pinch myself every now and again, but I'm always grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would even extend it beyond eavesdropping. I, I agree with what you're saying about we get to hit record on conversations we'd be having anyway. But I, I think of our listeners as our third member of the conversation. Yeah. Uh, and even though they're, they're a silent member, so except for when we see them on the road or we receive emails or texts or tweets or, or Instagrams. Live, yeah, or a live podcast. A live podcast. Yes, 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 yes. I'm I'm thirsty to go back on the road for another live podcast. Mm. I, I I enjoyed the three that we did in 2018. I'm ready for mm-hmm. for the first of, of 2019. So. Yeah. so yes, so we are both uh, incredibly thankful for the listenership and they get the inside jokes and they're part of the inside jokes and they they play along with the inside jokes. It's all absolutely magnificent. So yeah. So thank you, thank you. A million times thank you. (laughs) What he said. (laughs) Uh, (coughs) Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm going to leave that in. I think I'm going to leave that in. Jason literally coughed up a lung. He is about to spit out some of the greenest, brownest stuff. Um, Oh, Ever. Oh. He's a disgusting, disgusting man. Oh, oh, oh he's back. He's back. Never mind. You, you didn't. Yep. Oh, yeah, God. go on. The only reason that didn't hit my laptop is because it met the back of my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so gross. You are so disgusting. Moving right along. Point loose and fancy free. Getting near is half the fun. Yeah, so today yeah, so is the mailbag episode. Today is the mailbag episode, final episode of season two. We ended season one in the same way. We did, indeed. We find ourselves receiving many questions throughout the year. And for a while, we were answering one or two every episode. Loyal <laughs> listeners would, would know that. But then we found while our first episode was... 45 minutes. Our second episode got closer to an hour and and some of our episodes last two hours. And so we thought, why what's not? The longest, what's the longest episode we've put out? Two and a half hours? Yes, yeah, about two and a half hours. Actually, it might have been the mailbag episode from last year. Uh, that, that was a, a close contender. I don't think it was exactly it, but it, it was pretty damn close. Okay. I mean, there are, there are easy ways to check. Just, I guess we can open up iTunes. Who's got the time? Uh, yeah, who's got the time? So We're not fact-checking in the mailbag episode. <laughs> Actually, we did do some fact-checking. And, and there's a question about Bomore that came to us. And we reached out to one of our good friends in the industry who came back with an answer this morning. So I'm very happy to Oh, super duper. Yep. Um, yeah, so we... That's f- not fact-checking, though. That's research. Fine. You're welcome. Research, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> so, in an effort to keep the episodes to a you know uh, a digestible amount of time, which for me, I drive a lot, 
So I need at least an hour for my podcasts. If it's less than an hour, I get very upset with podcasts. It is weird. Uh, I agree with you. If I encounter a podcast that's even 45 minutes, it's... I think twice about listening to it, which is really weird. Yeah, especially, you know, if you're driving, the last thing you want to be do is you want to be doing is messing with your phone every Correct. 15, 20, 30 minutes. And so Correct. these short episodes, it's just not Yeah. I tell, I tell you a quick funny from last week. I was okay. I was in a store in uh, Santa Monica mm-hmm. and uh getting on great with the buyer there. He was really digging single cast nation retail offerings, uh, really digging what I had to say about our company mm-hmm. and the offerings. Nice. And, and I said, well, hey, listen, we also have a podcast, One Nation Under Whiskey. It's the tagline of single cast nation. Mm-hmm. And he he looked at me and he looked at my, uh, my rep uh, from the distributor and yeah. he said, podcast. <laughs> Oh, Podcast. Yeah, yeah. What 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 is one of these? Uh-huh. And so my rep is going like, well, you know, they're they're kind of like radio programs. They're, they're available online. You can download it so that you can listen to this guy. This guy. I, I don't know how old he was. My guess would be he was probably in his forties okay. somewhere. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, maybe ages with us. Right. He goes into his pocket, and as soon as he reached into his pocket, I knew what was going to happen next, because I, sir, have lived a life. (laughs) And he, bum, 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 threw down a flip phone on the counter. Oh, right. Yes. And he said, can I get them on this? And we said, oh, no. (laughs) And he said, well, there you go then. So it was kind of like, yeah, not everybody is on the uh, the podcast bandwagon at a time when virtually I think everybody who lives in the world has a podcast. Um, there are still people who either don't know them, don't listen to them, don't want to listen to them, don't know what they are. It, you know, it's, it's funny. I had Justin, uh, one of our Isla swimmers, right? Justin Fornal came over the house the other day. And we're just having a little conversation. His mom and dad came over. We're just, you know, reliving some of the, the, the time on Isla that we spent. And I see he gets a text and he goes into his... And he's he just turned 40, okay? Mm-hmm. So he's younger than us. Um, mm-hmm. And he reaches into his pocket and he's got a Motorola Razor. There you go. There <laughs> right? you go. Uh, you know, so these people aren't listening to podcasts, at least not on their phones. But, you know, if someone has uh, a smart speaker like Alexa or the Google one or the HomePod, uh, you know, or our website, you can listen to it from our website. You can do that. Um, Spotify, if you got Spotify. So there are other ways, but I think the vast majority of people really stream it on their phone. It tends oh, to yeah. be, you know, because you're on the go. You're on the go, right. and it's such a wonderful travel yeah, companion. If, yeah, if you were sitting down to listen to a two-hour episode of One Nation Under Whiskey, and it was only on your laptop, yeah, I think that would be a very different experience. Not to say it's impossible. Maybe some of our listeners do it, but it would be a very different experience. Well, you could put it on your iPad, listen to it while you're cooking. I think you know, like um, who is it, Natalie and Liz? listen to the podcast while they're doing their chores and stuff. You know, they, they, they often tweet about that. So, you know, there's, there's always to do that, but we're really getting a bit tangential here. What, what I wanted to point out 
was... I feel we, like this is the second episode in a row you've said we're getting a little tangential. We've spent two years getting tangential. And in the last two episodes, you've decided to start pointing it out. Right. All right yeah, your so, silence speaks volumes. <laughs> volumes, my friend. Here, let's give this a little try while we're here. Alexa, play One Nation Under Whiskey. One Nation Under Lasers Radio from Jason's Pandora. No, you have to say One Nation Under Whiskey podcast. So tell can her to hear, stop. Can you hear what happened? Yeah. Are you, Alexa, stop. Okay. Now, Alexa, play One Nation Under Whiskey podcast. Getting the latest episode of One Nation Under Whiskey. Here it is from TuneIn. Yeah! <laughs> oh, boy! Alexa, Amazing. stop. Amazing. Oh, that's wonderful. Right, right. Oh, that's, oh, that's delightful. Doesn't that feel good? But yeah. Glad I did a test run there. The word podcast has to be included or you yeah. get lasers. <laughs> freaking lasers. Dolphins with freaking lasers. Sharks. Sharks. Sharks, sharks with, with lasers. <laughs> Do not edit out that I'm not mistake. Gonna... You're a bad no, no, boy. No, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. Dolphins but... with lasers. Oh, my God. You think you know someone? What I've been trying to say for the past five minutes while we're going on about the podcasting technology. Yes, sir. Was that we started receiving so many questions and not being able to get to them. We created our mailbag episode. See, see how far we came? And you say, oh, you're now you're saying we're getting tangential. We started talking about that seven weeks ago and we're finally was, coming around that was beautiful <laughs> wow wow that's like billy conley stand-up beautiful wow you're welcome, you're welcome. Wow, uh, we really uh, went around the doors i totally forgot that's where we started talking yeah, about that yeah okay right let's jump into a question now let's get our first one from michael gore <laughs> so this is our second mailbag episode and we are pretty excited to have been collecting these questions for a while. So, Michael Gore, do you want to read Michael's Yeah, let me question? read this one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because he and I were actually in a conversation. So this right. one's actually only addressed to Jason. <sighs> You're doing it wrong, Michael. Go on. <laughs> he says, one question, if I may, which is a funny opening because we actually have two questions from Michael Gore. Uh, one question, if I may. Have sales of recent higher-priced bottles led you to consider expanding the range of casks you might acquire? Might we one day see some truly exotic unicorns like a Port Ellen or Dallas do? Oof. Well, I tell you, while Port Ellen sounds interesting to me, I would give your two front teeth to bottle a Dallas do. Uh, that's just me. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, when, when was Dallas do shuttered? Because I, I know there's a museum stands on the site of the oh. distillery now. Uh, uh, so I want to say 1986, but yeah, I, I, I feel like we're safe saying the second half of the 80s. Dallas um, do. Yeah. While you're looking that up, there was a time I took a, a whiskey geek tour to Campbelltown. And in the Caden Heads warehouse, there was a 1979 Dallas Dew. Oh, yeah. It was very, very tasty. Did you get a bottle of that? Fuck, yes, I did. Okay. It's a 35-year-old. I would put that 
in probably the, the my top five whiskeys of all time, period. Hmm. It does everything I want a whiskey to do, uh, minus Pete, right? There's, there's no Pete in yeah. there. But to answer the question before, when did it shudder? Yes, sir. I had two thoughts in my head. My first thought was 1983, but I said, no, nah, let me let me stretch it out because they were really shuddering. 83 was a big one. 86 was a big one. Correct. Um, and so I said 86, but I was wrong. I should have went with my gut. It was 83. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Opened okay. in 1899 and shuddered finally in 1983. Okay. There you go. Shuddered in 83. <sighs> yeah. But no word on when it was demolished or turned into a museum. I'm sure there is. I just don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Gotcha. I just um, figured since you had a source in front of you, it might already be in yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. <clears throat> yes. So to so to continue answer his question, please. So we've never put it out of our mind to bottle a unicorn such as Port Ellen, such as Brora, such as Dallas Dews, such as Old Bomores, or or anything like this. So let me pause you there. <laughs> <laughs> Because I want to back it up to the first half of this question. And then I'll give you the floor again for the second half. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Mike says, have sales of recent higher price bottles led you to consider expanding the range of cash you might acquire? That's an interesting setup for the question. Yeah, good point. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think it, it shows a difference for us between what we've been doing historically with Single Cast Nation Online mm-hmm. and what we've been able to achieve with online sales in 2018 and the addition of retail. Okay. We knew when we moved into retail that we would have an opportunity to put out some older whiskeys. And and so far we've done older grain whiskeys, uh, a 28-year-old canvas. We've done the 1974 Invergordon. Mm-hmm both at, at really cracking prices. Um, but then we also did the 28-year-old Undisclosed Speyside, which quite quickly in retail matched the oldest whiskey we put online. And that's what I was going to say. Let's not forget that we did do a 28-year-old Brunner right. Haben. Right. But we have we had known prior to 2018 on, that the online model, we needed bottles that were more like 10 years old, 12 years old. We had bottled a 17 it was a slow burner because it was a higher price. We had bottled an 18. It was a slow burner because it was a higher price. I, I think we could now put older whiskeys into online sales mm-hmm. and have them sell really well. But to answer Mike's question, it really took the success of 2018 for us to begin to consider doing older bottlings online. Yes, yes. And you know, the the question about higher priced bottles I I find a bit interesting. You know, just I'm thinking of our Port Charlotte 14-year-old at 125. I I would say I would argue that that was perhaps priced a bit too low. Oh yeah. Oh, without doubt. You know, anytime we bottle any whiskey, whether it's a two-year-old from Westland, a four-year-old from Kilhoman, a 43-year-old from Invergordon. It always has to be something that we as whiskey fanatics would say, are we willing to open up our wallets? 
Yeah, correct. Right? And is it a value for the money? So I think what he's saying is if you're selling a 25-year-old American light whiskey mm-hmm. for $250 mm-hmm. and it's selling out in minutes, mm-hmm. does that give you the confidence to think you could bring in a Port Ellen, a Dallas Dew, a yeah. Spring yeah, Bank? Yeah, yeah. Yep, good. Good, good, good. That's what he's asking. Good, good. And and I appreciate you doing that. So to answer the question, yeah, I, I would say we do feel a bit more uh, encouraged that should we find that older, rarer cask that, again, so long as the price makes sense, uh, we feel comfortable purchasing that, bottling that, and, and putting it for sale, whether it's online or retail, it, it has encouraged us very much. So, yeah. oh, I, there's no doubt in my mind. Because, and I've, I've always been the cautious one around these parts about mm-hmm. oh, that's that's gonna end up costing us too much money. I don't think people would spend that money on it, and uh, I get proven wrong every single time. So, I'm starting to build confidence from what I'm seeing. Do we want to give a little hint of something that we? maybe have our eyes on that fits into this category? Well, I'm I'm happy to more than hint. I'm, I'm happy to tell people what we're looking at, and it's looking like it's going to come to fruition. There's a chance it may not, uh, but I'm happy to, to share this because you and I, good sir, have been eyeing a whiskey like this f- since the beginning. Since yes, the sir. very beginning. This is true. And uh, so what we're looking at is a beautiful, well, it's currently 29 years old. It's going to turn 30 years old in March. But we're looking at a 1989 bourbon cask matured Beaumore. Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> Our first ever Beaumore. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm happy to say an FWP Beaumore. Floral, lavender, pretty, elegant. It's a style that is polarizing. Some people don't like that floral, candied style of of Beaumore, and sometimes that style is soapy, right? And and all the more for us to enjoy. All the more for us to enjoy. If you like a little bit of soapiness, uh, and sometimes it is overly so. I've tasted. Uh, uh, an FWP Beaumore that is pure, unadulterated garbage. Um, but I've tasted some that are amazing. Think of the Master of Malt one from 1982, right? Phenomenal. It's the best, aside from Gold Beaumore, it's the best Beaumore I've ever tasted. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah, I actually came back from LA with some uh, FWP Beaumore uh, samples. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice, good nice. friend out there sent me mm-hmm. away with some FWP samples, which mm-hmm. I'm always uh, grateful for. Yeah. So that is, I would say, a bit of a unicorn. You just don't see a lot of 80s Beaumore being bottled anymore. For sure, because we look for it a lot. A lot. And yeah, so. There's not a lot out there. So is there any other? <laughs> um, obviously, Springbank. Uh, is a is a truly exotic unicorn for for me for us. I've got one. <laughs> you should set it free. <laughs> if it loves you, it'll come back, Joshua. 
If you're not with the one you love. Uh, no, wrong song. Uh, Imperial. We're going to bottle our first Imperial this year. Now, granted, there have been plenty of Imperials bottled by Signatory, but there haven't been any in a while. The distillery was shut down in the 90s and then officially demolished in the 2000-ish years. I want to say 2010 is when it was finally demolished. And uh, yeah, so one of these, and for me, people say Springbank, and I think of Springbank and Imperial. Imperial is like the number one distillery I look for when when I'm looking for independently bottled whiskey. It's Imperial, then mm. Springbank. Yeah, my, my take would be uh, so long as Diageo continues to put out annual release Port Ellen and Brora, and especially now with the rebirth of Port Ellen, um, I just don't imagine seeing old Port Ellen or Brora single casts in the market. Right. You've got Diageo that is actively trying to buy back as much Port Ellen as possible from everybody who's sitting on it. And yeah, uh, we have friends in the industry. There's no doubt about it. I don't think we have a single friend in the industry that is going to give up a Port Charlotte to us, especially if they could either A, bottle it themselves, or B, get Diageo money for it. You said so, Port Charlotte. Did I say Port Charlotte? I meant Port yeah, Ellen. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Uh, you're Port Charlotte on the brain. I do, I do. So I meant Port Ellen. So let's press on, because we've got another another part of a question here from Michael Gore. Okay. I've learned quite a bit from both your bottles and podcasts, but one issue is not quite fully clear to me. Whilst I have begun to appreciate quality blended scotch, I've been led to believe that there's an an inherent downside baked into all blends. Hmm. To put it more succinctly, will a single malt slash single barrel have a more focused or sharp flavor than a similar blend? Do you think he means like a, a, a single blend, like a single blend, single cask? I don't know. Because <laughs> um, hmm. it, it strikes me, if you've got a single malt, then you've got multiple barrels present within it. Mm-hmm. If you then bring in a, a single barrel of a blend, as you and I have released to Nation membership... Yeah, right. In the last month of 2018. Yeah, and and exclusive malts had some, Caddenheads had some. uh, Right. You know, Uh, people have been releasing them. Yeah, go on. I I think when you then get the blended malt within a single barrel, within a single container, I think it's as well married and as well integrated as any flavor in a single malt. Yes, and let, let me add to that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You you finish, and then I'm going to add. So what what I wonder if, if uh, Mike is getting at here is whether or not a grain presence mm-hmm. within a blended scotch mm-hmm. is always a down note, right? Is yeah. something lacking in a blend... Because there's always young grain in there. Assuming there's no age statement on the blend, yes. 
there was there would be young grain in there. But if it's a twelve year old age statement like Johnny Walker Black or Isle of Sky or Chivas Regal uh, or Ballantines, where they have age statements, obviously that grain has to be whatever the minimum age is. So I think I think what you're saying is correct. Is merely the inclusion of grain in the blend going to bring down the overall experience. Well, let's look at it this way. You know, you've got a massive scotch whiskey industry where 90 to 92% of the entire industry is blended whiskey. And the large portion of that is going to be cheap blends for people who go into bars and say, give me a scotch on the rocks, right? Mm -hmm. Give me, give me a grouse on the rocks. Give me a, you know, whatever. And that doesn't need to be made to taste amazing. It needs to be scotch on the rocks and nothing more. And so I would argue that a lot of blends aren't made to be fantastic. They're just made to be a social drink. And so you have the possibility, maybe propensity is the word, just to have a lot of that out there, which it doesn't matter what it is. It's just blended scotch whiskey. It doesn't have to be great. Yeah. Volume is the name of the game. Volume is the name of the game. Now, when you get into the more prestigious blends, and I would put Johnny Walker Black in there, or Isle of Sky, eight-year-old, 12-year-old, or Chivas Regal. Now you have an age statement, right? So that's good. And that will help the grain. It's still going to, if you're a single malt guy or gal, it's, it's still going to be different. I would argue the quality is better. But then you've got people such as Ian McLeod who do Isle of Sky that take a different approach to blend where let's take what the average blend is, right? The scotch on the rocks blend. You've got 10 to 20% malt whiskey, the rest being grain whiskey. I know having, you know, being one of the people who sell Isle of Sky, they do about a 50, 50 of malt to grain. So you got a bit more malt whiskey in there and they're doing something that you touched on where they extra mature that whiskey in cask just to round out and just to integrate. And so from a whiskey drinker's perspective, I wonder what other blends are doing that where they're integrating that blend by way of extra oak maturation. I was going to add on to what you were saying about that kind of coming together in wood. I just think offers a bit more structure yeah and in addition to the age that comes along with that time in wood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um it, it is interesting to to dip back into a, a non-age statement blend and just have that kind of harsh element to it but to circle back to to mike's question here he says while i've begun to appreciate quality blended scotch Right. I've been led to believe there's an inherent downside. Like, you know, don't let anybody lead you to believe anything there, right? Yeah. If, yeah. You're, if you're exploring and appreciating quality blended scotch, go for it. Don't don't go into that world 
looking for some believed downside. Mm. And and I'm sure right now, Joshua, we've got, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of listeners screaming compass box. That's all uh, that was going around my head. <laughs> compass box, compass box, compass box. Right. I, I had a number of people say uh, to me last week in LA, high west, right? The, the type of blending yeah, yeah, good that point. high west was doing that kind of introduced Americans to that compass box style of, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's unexpected. Oh, there's a nice mm-hmm. twist. Yeah. And so, yeah, quality blended scotchies are quality. And I I wouldn't go looking for, for what's lacking in them. I don't think there's an inherent downside to them. No, especially when you get into the world of, and when I say higher end blends, I'm talking about, you're getting beyond, you're getting into the $25, $30, $40, $50 bottle of blended whiskey. There are some that will always be meant to be scotch on the rocks and nothing else. And yep. that, that just moves. The, the other thing that I would like to point out before I go to the toilet, because I need to turn into a racehorse, uh, if you catch my meaning. Not every day you get to say that in your life, Joshua. <laughs> The other thing that I would like to point out to people... Unless it's a Shetland pony race, of course. <laughs> is like the word craft. The oh, word, oh, we're back again. Right? I think third, the, third episode <laughs> in a row. <laughs> I think the word blend, it imparts this terribly bad connotation. Yep. And not rightfully so. And, and I'm going to use this example because most people do not think about whiskey in this way. If you love your bottle of Laphroaig 10, of Ardbeg 10, of Kilhoman Macker Bay, of Glenmorangie 10, you, you name it, Springbank 15, Springbank 18, whatever it is, every single single malt on the market, if it's not a single cask, is a blend it just yep. happens to be a blend of malt whiskey from a single distillery. Yep. So the art of making a blended whiskey like Johnny Walker or Famous Grouse or what have you is the same art used to make your favorite single age-stated or non-age-stated single malt whiskey. The difference being you have the chance of young unage-stated blends that could be cheap, and that's their goal. They don't need to be great. You know, you have that propensity, but you need to think about what a blend is, and everything is a blend. Unless it's single cask, it is a blend. So let's try <laughs> to take that stigma out of that word just a little bit. You know, what we could throw on top of that is, given that so many single casks have got parts of re-racked casks in them, uh, even, even your single cask could be a little bit of a blend. That's a really good point. Take our very first Aaron that we bottled, eight years bourbon, four years Pinot Noir. And what they did is they took a host of eight-year-old first fill bourbon, matured Aaron, married it together, and then filled Pinot Noir casks. Now we bottled that individual Pinot Noir cask, but it was a marriage of multiple ex-bourbon casks initially. And, you know, that's something that Bozzy had talked about a while. I, I remember mm-hmm. him being a bit upset with with what Glendronach was doing. And 
the fact of the matter is that just happens all the time. It's just not necessarily clearly defined. Our stance is we bottled a single cask. How it got to that doesn't really matter to us so long as the final result of that single cask is good whiskey. Uh, but you at least, have disagreed you know, over your usage of that terminology previously. Yeah. It doesn't really matter to us. Everything matters to us all the time. We just don't always go back into the history of it to say this started out life there and went, because there's not always a paper trail for that. The juice itself has a paper trail. Yes, but it, okay, I have to pee. <laughs> On that note, I have to urinate. So give me a second. Oh my gosh, I got to pee so bad. <laughs> hey, look everybody, Billy peed his pants. Of course I peed my pants. Everybody my age pees their pants. It's the coolest. Really? Yes, you ain't cool unless you pee your pants. While that was mere seconds for our listeners, um, you and I know it's now Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) Whoo! All right. This is what happens when you drink three pots of tea. That's it. I'm in the same boat there. (laughs) (laughs) 20 more minutes. Take another Uh break. Uh Uh-huh. Did we answer? Absolutely. Yeah. Thoroughly. Unequivocally. Maybe not to to Mike's satisfaction, but I feel we've answered it to our satisfaction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think the takeaway is, Mike, if you're enjoying quality blends, keep enjoying quality blends. There you go. Yeah, look out for them. I highly suggest uh, Ballantine 17. Mm. Love, lovely blend. If you can find the old BNJ blend, which is very hard to find. Bailey Nickel Jarvie? Yep. Uh, it is phenomenal little blend for the money. Obviously, anything Compass Box, you, you simply cannot go wrong there. Um, I say Isle of Sky, full disclosure. I'm with the company that imports that. But the eight-year-old, I just love it because it's brutish. Mm. It's uh, kind of good sherry, good peat, 43% rather than 40 I really like it. Is there Are there any blends you like? No. Nope. you go for <laughs> no that's not true that's not true I was, no I agree with everything you've said uh, absolutely I think you've hit all the right brands there's none for me to add unless you find some white horse from the 70s which is oh, well worth yeah. which is yeah. well worth your time oh I'll tell you what else Johnny, Johnny Red from the 80s oh Johnny Red from the 80s and 70s as well but the 80s you know, you've got this period where no one's drinking scotch whiskey. There's a lot of it out there. Good sherry matured stuff too. And it's, okay, guys, what do we do with this whiskey we're sitting on? Put it into Johnny Red. Get it out there. Yeah, you can also find yeah. some of those antique bottles really cheaply at auctions. And, yeah. and by really cheaply, I mean a couple hundred dollars. Um, but yeah. for something with a, with a significant piece of history behind it mm-hmm. well worth it yeah. um okay let's press on joshua um yep, 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 yep. We, we did talk about getting through all the emails today oh okay do you want to read the the email from tim mooshaw yeah he's in maryland good lad yeah good lad uh well i i say good lad i've never met him you've met him i know i, I was letting you run with it you were having a moment <laughs> <laughs> he is a good lad so he he says He says, okay, a lot of distilleries have been doing more and more sherry casks, which add a darker, more fruitier note than bourbon casks seem to. 
how much of this is a result of residual sherry seeping out of the wood and into the whiskey versus the influence of European oak versus American oak? That is, when tasting something like Uresia and Glenfarclas, which was aged only in sherry casks, how much of the sherry taste would you say is coming from the difference in type of oak versus the actual sherry blending with the whiskey? Yeah, it's a lovely question. Just to be very clear, obviously there's going to be sherry in the wood and there can be potentially some sherry left in the cask when the whiskey producers receive it, but they don't ever intend to marry that sherry with the whiskey. They, Correct. Right? Correct. Uh, that's, a good, that's a good point to make early. Right. And they will dump it as much as possible because then you're not dealing with whiskey, you're dealing with a liqueur. Exactly. I, I think exactly. that that's very important. And if you think about companies like Highland Park, for instance, and, and they're starting to release a lot of single cask series uh, you know, for various markets and, and various retailers, they use both American oak and European oak. And, and I remember watching an interview with, what was his name? Jerry Tosh, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Jerry yeah. Tosh. Yeah. He was the global ambassador for, for Highland Park. And when he would talk about the influence on the whiskey, it was never, oh, this Oloroso cask that, or this PX cask this. It was, let's see what European oak is doing to this whiskey. Let's hmm. see what American oak is doing to this whiskey. And, you know, it was never a matter of let's get this sherry to influence what the whiskey will taste like. It was, yeah. let's see what this wood does to influence this whiskey. Yeah. And so I, so I just want to preface everything we're about to say with that. I think especially the major producers want to focus on what the wood is going to do to the whiskey rather than what the sherry might. And, and us having gone to Hereth recently to source sherry casks. You know, we're looking at American oak, we're looking at European oak, we're looking at actual Spanish oak. Mm -hmm. And those three types of wood are going to do something different to the whiskey, just like it would do something different to the sherry as well. But it's our focus on the oak first. So when Tim asks how much of the color change in a whiskey Mm -hmm. is dependent on the sherry going in as opposed to the oak affecting it. Mm-hmm. It strikes me that your sherry liquid will color your whiskey yeah. more than your wood might. The other thing, and and I could be wrong in saying that. You are, and I'll yeah. correct so you let, after. So let, me, yeah, so let me continue on that then. So one of the things to think about, and, and I've shown this in my tastings with wine cask maturation. Mm-hmm. When a whiskey matured in a cask that had previously held a white wine comes out to be dark, I'm thinking about our Catoctin Creek two-year-old and three-year-olds yeah, here. Point. Yeah. The number of people who say, why would a white wine make for such a dark whiskey? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, if you compare having a wine in a cask compared to having a bourbon in a cask, mm-hmm. it's much lower alcohol. Mm-hmm. It's not going to draw the color yeah. from the char exactly. into the liquid. Yes, and so it's uh, so yeah. So it's it's 
it's the instance here. But I wanted to get the other side of that yeah. out. Almost, almost a misconception in itself. Um, yeah. Well, I think our seven-year-old Glenn Murray is an excellent example of whiskey being matured in a cask that previously held Fino. Mm-hmm. Right? Fino sharing. We know if and if you haven't listened to the episode yet, please go back and check out our sherry episode. Mm. But we know from having spent time with mm. our friend Juan at Lestau that in the process of making Fino, there's no oxidation in there to allow the wine to extract the color from the cask. And if you look at Fino wine, it's light yellow, sometimes almost clear. But once the spirit goes into it, now the spirit has the opportunity to take all of the char from the oak. And and I'll give another example. Exclusive. I'm actually pouring some of our Glen Murray Fino as you're giving another example. Oh, that's that's a good idea. Um, I'm full of good ideas. <laughs> the other example that I would say here is Exclusive Malts recently released. If when I say recent, I mean last year and probably 2017 released some eight-year-old Glen Talkers. And one was from an, a vintage European oak cask, and one was from an American oak cask. The American oak was a much lighter color whiskey, and that's simply because American oak is very hard, very tight, not extremely porous. And European oak is a softer wood that's incredibly porous. And so the spirit has the opportunity to dig into the wood and pull out that char. Is some color coming from the sherry that's kind of locked in the wood? I'm sure it's coloring it a bit. Ooh, look at the color on that. Isn't that Um, crazy? But it's really the wood and the char from the wood that a much higher ABV spirit is able to pull out that wine can't necessarily pull out. Oh, I have to tell you, Joshua, the reason that I wanted to pour that after you were just talking about it there is after being in Hareth, after having so many conversations about Fino, after drinking so much Fino, after coming back and drinking so much Fino, <laughs> I haven't dipped back into this bottle. And it's all seven years in first fill Fino butt. Yeah. This is, oh my goodness. This is like standing back in Hareth. But wow. having a little whiskey in my glass as we're standing Oof. in their in their cellars. I've got no whiskey. Should I change that? I wasn't anticipating having whiskey, but I just had to go get some after that <laughs> little uh, conversation. So, yeah. Do you have any of the first fill Fino GM? Yeah, I got it somewhere. Should I yeah. should I go grab it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Once you stick your nose in it, it's amazing. We're still talking about whiskey. Hey, you're the one talking about soft wood. Joshy's back. So again, what what felt like seconds to our listeners. Uh, you and I know it's now Friday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing that gets me. People think these episodes are really long. We spend literally a week recording them. So. <laughs> we don't see our family for a week at a time. 
Oh, gosh, I, I haven't opened this up in probably a year and a half. I actually, I did pour it at a tasting maybe uh, last Labor Day, maybe. Okay. okay. Maybe, maybe longer than that. I can't quite remember. It all strings wow. together after a while. Isn't that Fino amazing on the nose? It's, it brings me right back to the Fino that we had at, at Lestau, that sharp kind of dryness going on. It's almost... You know that hint of ca- uh, of chamomile you get on manzanilla mm-hmm. is kind of in here. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for uh, thank you for the good idea. Yeah, you're the one that brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything on this on this part that we that we're missing? That we want to add? No, I, I don't think so. Now that we're now that we're pouring this fino on the Glen Murray, I will say the fino profile is pronounced on the nose. Mm-hmm. I don't get it as much across the palate. I wouldn't want to commit wholeheartedly to that since I'm clearly not on my A game. But e- even if there is any phenol presence on the palate, it is nowhere near as pronounced it is on the nose. That is 100% true. Yeah. What's this? 58.8%? Oh, gosh, yeah. it drinks like a dream. Mm. I'm going to have more of that later tonight. <laughs> So I, so I would say for, for Tim's question, how much of the sherry taste would you say is coming from the difference in the type of oak versus actual sherry blending with a whiskey? That oak is doing some heavy lifting on the palate. It seems like the aromatics carry mm-hmm. on from the previous sherry, but it's the oak that's working on the flavors in the mouth. Yeah, I, I think it's good here just to point out one last thing about intent. I don't think it's the intention of distilleries to make their whiskey taste like sherry. Mm. However, they understand what different types of wood is going to do to the whiskey, and they understand how that sherry could potentially season that wood. But it's not with the intent of, we want to make this taste like sherry, right? Then if it's tasting like sherry, it's not going to taste like Highland Park anymore or Glen Murray or, or any any of these. So that's all. I just wanted to add that little bit there. <laughs> Thank you for adding that little bit there. <laughs> As you talk about adding just the tip, uh, here's an email from Jim Cook. Yes. That I think is a setup. Uh, hi, J Squared, <laughs> which I like. He has two questions as well. I was relating some of the finer points of barrel aging and finishing to my girlfriend when I hit a hard one, which Jim Cook, always the penis with him. How do you explain wood penetration to your wife or girlfriend? Okay, let me just cue up the porn music. Yeah. Is this a dick joke? (laughs) He does say too, and on a more serious note, I'm, I'm not sure where that's going to go. I'm going to pause there for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, here, here's what I say: if we're if we're looking for this to be super simple, easy peasy, wood yeah. penetration, think of the oak staves as a sponge. Liquids on one side, atmospheres on the other. Think about squeezing your sponge to bring in all of that liquid. Think about releasing your sponge to have it go out to the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Think about squeezing that sponge to bring in what's in the atmosphere, releasing that sponge to let what goes through uh, the porous membrane into the liquid. There you go. That's exa- that's that's wood penetration for you. The harder you crack it, the harder you char it, the deeper you penetrate it. Classic. <laughs> the... Other thing that I would add, because it's not just cask aging, 
is is finishing and the idea of finishing it started a long 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 time ago uh, so for uh, Jim for your girlfriend or for anyone else who doesn't know the idea of finishing is to take one whiskey that may be not so great or it may be just fine or it may be perfectly quaffable as is but that producer says well I want other flavors to be a part of that or I need to fix this whiskey. What do I do? So you take that whiskey that was maturing first and say a bourbon barrel or a bourbon hogshead and you transfer that into a sherry cask or a wine cask or what have you just to impart different flavors to bring in a bit more dimension. It can also be a coloring issue. We have, known, oh, yeah. we have known producers in Scotland who would use a little bit of finishing just to add some color. Mm-hmm. I was discuss- I was mentioning this just last week in LA. We have bottled Lechigs as, as clear as water, some Lefroigs that were almost as clear as water. We are not as committed yeah. to whiskey being a particular color as some bottlers are. Texture is our thing. We are always looking for texture. Some bottlers are always looking for color. So um, so that would be a way to finish a whiskey to get a little bit more of a blush, especially if you're using a clear bottle. Yeah, yeah, good good point. I would say, however, and I, and I understand why people do this. I understand why you want to transfer whiskey from one cast to another to gain color because people like darker whiskeys, right? You and I do this all the time. Oof, look at the color on that. But don't be afraid of light color whiskey. Correct. Right? It's it's it just because it's lighter doesn't mean it's going to taste it's going to be less flavorful. It just means that profile is going to be different. And partly that's what I enjoyed about I would take great pains to point out how lightly colored yeah. our Lechig was, our Lafroig was. Because I wanted people to have that cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. of, well, that's really clear, but it's got a ton of flavor. Like, yeah, why would flavor be connected to color, right? If if big brands are allowed to use caramel coloring, you mm. know, why, mm-hmm. why would we be thinking flavor is connected to the color of it? So yeah, I, I love, love throwing that around. Yeah, so. can, can I add in a, a misconception that is... <laughs> misconception Apro- on the fly ap- apropos of, of yes, what sir. we're saying here uh-huh. this I hear this all the time uh-huh. when I'm pouring one of our whiskeys or maybe Port Askeg or Kilhoman you know if I'm doing an event and mm. I pour a lighter whiskey yeah some of the Port Askegs can be really really light oh, colored yeah, yeah. comes and, in a green bottle and so people don't see it coming yes and and so they look at it and they say and they taste it and they say, ooh, that's peaty. I wasn't expecting that given the color. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Like, like all yeah. of a sudden, color equals smokiness. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, whiskey is not a lung, right, <laughs> where you start smoking it and all of a sudden the lung turns black. <laughs> you know, it's when that spirit comes off the still, it is clear as day. Yeah. And if it's peated whiskey, if they're peating the barley, smoking the barley, and then distilling it, you can have an ultra clear liquid that is peaty and smoky. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So is, that's <laughs> it is funny how we've how we've grown to connect darker colored whiskies to 
bigger, bolder flavored whiskeys, mm. regardless of the flavors we're thinking of. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so it, it is. And, and it, it is. I think it's part of our responsibility as independent bottlers to keep breaking down those misconceptions, to mm-hmm. keep putting out lighter colored whiskeys that we know um, can be forgotten on shelves because they're lighter colored. Mm-hmm. But but people who know single cast nation know that they're going to get textured, layered, flavorful drams. Yeah. Regardless yeah. of color. Yeah, exactly. So moving on to Jim Cook's second paragraph. Mm -hmm. Two, and on a more serious note, the Creative Whiskey Company was sold last year. It is rumored the Asian buyer is taking all the stock for his own purposes in the Far East. Given they were rumored to be an important source for a single cast nation, what new sources have you now contracted with? It's interesting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I well, yeah. had not previously read that paragraph, <laughs> and I <laughs> am intrigued by the number of rumors in that paragraph. Uh, so well, yeah. First things first, Yeah, we cannot speak to David Stark's business and Creative Whiskey Company. Yes, it was sold. There are rumors that it was uh, an Asian buyer. We have heard the same ru- rumors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cannot confirm or deny anymore. We've we've met with David. We've had dinner with David since the sale a couple of times, and uh, he has not told us anything. So we are only operating uh, in rumor and conjecture uh, along with everybody else. Yeah. He was an important source for us. He was a good lad. We had a great business relationship with him, mm-hmm. but he wasn't the only person we bought casks from. And it doesn't make sense in this business to put all your casks in one basket anyway. No. And, and I think it's, it may be good to point out. I think, I think a lot of, a lot of the reason why people may feel we had gotten so much from David was he he was our bottler, right? Mm -hmm. So he Mm -hmm. bottled everything that, that we purchased, whether we purchased the cask from him or we purchased the cask from one of our other brokers or from a distillery, he was our guy. And so, yes, you know, we're not purchasing casks from him anymore, but part of the reason you and I go to Scotland as often as we do is we need to meet with our other brokers and add more brokers into our to our yeah. roster of suppliers. Yeah. Yep. Right. Um, yep. And we're we're always looking at adding more distillery direct relationships as well. Yeah. And that allows us to bring more whiskey to our, our members and our, our retail fans, consumers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, more whiskey is always better than less whiskey. Uh, losing David from that was a real shame because we just thoroughly enjoy the man and enjoy seeing him and drinking with him. Uh, we will continue to see him and drink with him. He is not dead. Uh, <laughs> rumors of his demise have been greatly exaggerated. So we will get that. But yeah, on the professional side of things, it'll be a shame not heading down to his warehouse and tasting through casks and mm-hmm. and uh, and just discussing whiskey with him. So, um, You know, one of my favorite rumors was? <laughs> <laughs> we, that, that we bought it? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I heard that from a couple of different people. We heard that you bought yeah. Creative Whiskey Company. We should have. We should we have. Should we have. missed. Yeah. I don't think this is speaking out of school, but it was, as far as the whiskey industry is concerned, it's it's a bit of a 
whispery industry. And then when you meet up and you have some drams and some pints, a bit of dinner, everybody's checking everybody else for what's the latest. What have you yeah, heard? What do you know? Of course. Yeah. And the day we got the email that Creative Whiskey Company had sold, we immediately reached out to various industry contacts to say, who bought it? And we got responses saying, who bought what? <laughs> who, who sold? <laughs> like we, and this all, this never happens. So I'm okay saying this. We were among the first people in the industry to know that David had sold. Mm-hmm. And when we reached out to people that we rely on for information within the industry, they were learning from us that David had sold. <laughs> I have never yeah. seen or heard of a more quiet sale. Amazing. Than that. that was amazing. It was, yeah. it was unbelievable. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. So while, yes, we should have bought it, um, it was sold before we even knew it was for sale. Which is unfortunate because would we have purchased it? In a heartbeat. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's such a, a wonderful brand and and such great stock. You know, we, we had a fair understanding of some of what he had in his stock. And you know what? It went to whoever that other party is and and life moves, moves on and we continue to grow our brand rather than someone else's. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Here's an email from Balancer. I'll let you read this one. So I don't know if you knew this. His Christian name is not Balancer. It's funny. I I saw Anthony Riviera on uh, this week's shipping spreadsheet. And so oh, that was Balancer. Go. I did not know that was Balancer. Yeah. When when he was born from the womb, his mom and dad did not say, oh, Balancer Riviera. It's got and, it's <laughs> and ver- No, they didn't include Riviera. He's like Cher. He's just oh. got one name. Balancer. Yeah. yeah. Verily, I shall call the... Balancer. Um, I have to say, I was just sipping a little bit more of that Glen Murray 7. Mm-hmm. All that, all those chocolate notes, cocoa notes that just go across the palate are remarkable in it. Like, Absolutely remarkable. Like, yeah. draws your attention to it. I was thinking about something completely different and was like, well, that's a lot of chocolate in the palate. It's like, and this, it's like cocoa powder. Yeah. And this was, I mean, I, I don't know if, I think we may have talked about that before, but most of the Glen Murray we've bottled, we've purchased directly from mm-hmm. Glen Murray. This one, on the other hand, we we did get from a broker, and but it was only with Glen Murray's blessing where they said, "We trust your palate. If you say it's good, we trust you with representing our brand name, our, our distillery name," uh, which was very nice of them. Yeah, they said to us in in two thousand and six when this was distilled. Uh, we were not putting anything into First Filfino. Yeah, so they sold it as Spirit. Yep. And whoever they bought it, whoever bought that, put it into Fino, which was very, really interesting. Yep. Yep. No idea who did that. No idea how long they sat on it. But yeah. And this, this I think, makes your point from earlier. In uh, in late 2013, we were simply offered a sample of this. We liked it. We bought the single cask as it was offered to us. And again. We don't know the history between distillation and us buying it. We do care that it was quality maturation. Yes. But we don't know the details in order to share the details. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You you take my words and you make them better. You better apply them. I tell you, anybody can polish a turd. You just need practice. <laughs> okay. Balancer's email. Right. So he says, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, 
Dear One Nation Under Whiskey. He took <laughs> That's a really safe route. That is that. I don't think many people have thought about that opening, so well done. Yeah. I was wondering if there's a standard of time in which a whiskey that's finished in a cask actually becomes a second maturation. I was reading an article where whiskey was referred to as being, quote, finished for five years, and I immediately thought, that's more of a second maturation. <laughs> I, I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> and so he goes on, he says, so is there a general standard of time that those in the whiskey industry refer to as a whiskey being finished? And if so, is it correct to refer to a whiskey that exceeds this period of time as a second maturation? So I'm going to lead Go ahead. with simply my experience mm -hmm. in the industry as it has pertained to my understanding. So this is not coming from the Scotch Whiskey Association guidebook. Mm -hmm. This is not coming down to me from on high from a, a venerable source such as Richard Patterson or David Stewart or Jim McEwen. This is simply my understanding as I have existed within this industry. Finishing can go from anywhere from weeks, a number of weeks, to several months, to in my mind, 18 months. Well, change your mind because you've got Glenmorangie, La Santa, Quinta Ruban, Nectar d'Or that are all two years. Okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll wriggle six months. I'm, I'm easy. Okay. But I would not go beyond two years. You, so you personally, you wouldn't go beyond two years and still call it a finish. You would start to call it one second. Absolutely. Okay, so. Absolutely. I need to challenge your thought on what finishing is a bit. That's an interesting way to put it. You shared with me, with our listeners, what your view on, you know, basically you, 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 you've, you've capped it. You've put a governor yeah. on what finishing can be as far like as length of time. I like your use of governor. Thank you, sir. Yeah, well done. So I personally would extend f a finishing period and calling it finishing mm -hmm. up to three years. Why? Because at three years and one day, you're officially a scotch whiskey, and this is unfinished whiskey. And so my thought is, if your finish is more than what it would mean to be scotch whiskey in its originating cask. Interesting. Then once you get past that, to me, that's a second maturation. Now, you know, you, you, you've gotten official time in cask for it to be called matured scotch whiskey. So I would say up to three years. This is my own personal thought. And then after that, I would call it double maturation. And we on our labels, we, for instance, are Aaron, Pinot Noir, Yep. For, for our Glen Murray Madeira, the way that we've talked about it, we never call it finish because the first one was four years. The second one was six years. We say yeah. first maturation, cask number whatever, first fill bourbon. Second maturation, cask number whatever, such and such a cask, right? So yep. we would say first period of maturation, second period of maturation. The fact of the matter is, as far as the rules go, 
once you take whiskey from its original cask and put it into another, it's a finish. Regardless of the number of years, there really is no hard and fast rules. And, and anybody out in the industry or who's part of the SWA who's listening to this, please correct me, but, but my understanding has been once you transfer to another cask, regardless of the number of years, even if it spent longer a period of time in that secondary cask, it's a finish. I'm on the Scotch Whiskey Association website. Okay, go ahead. I have searched their document for the word finish. Mm-hmm. And it is used three times in the same entry. Okay. What is meant by the term finishing? Scotch whiskey must be matured in oak casks for a minimum of three years and is often matured much longer. Finishing is an extension of the maturation process when the spirit is subsequently filled into empty casks that previously held other wines or spirits for a further relatively short period at the end of maturation. The cask used for finishing must have been drained of any liquid prior to its use and any change in the spirit will therefore result from its interaction over time with the wood of the cask. That is all the Scotch Whiskey Association has to say about finishing. Okay, so the important bit is a relatively short period Uh, of time. (laughs) A relatively short period at the end of maturation. So finishing is not considered maturation. But the key word there is relative. It's all relative. So here's what I'm going to suggest. Okay, go ahead. I think finishing is meant to last less than one year because if you keep it under a year, you don't add a digit to your years of maturation. But if that's the case, then you've got the Balvenie, you've got Glenmorangie, you've got every producer out there that is doing a finishing period of two years, sometimes a little more, sometimes less. But that flies in the face of what they're doing, what the SWA allows them to put on their labels. Um, exactly. Yeah. Interesting, though, that, that that's how they listed out a relatively short period of time. No, no, no. You, you keep misquoting the end of that. <sighs> relatively short period... Mm-hmm. At the end of maturation. That's what's vital to me. At the end of maturation. The rule is in a good way, I think, in a really good way, not clear enough. And it allows for innovation. I really like that because it does get back to your theory of relativity. This is not objective, it's completely subjective. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. why I led out this yeah. answer by saying, in my experience, yeah. in this industry, yeah. here's how I've always understood it, or here's how I've always responded to it. Yeah, finishing is a vague area. I'm glad this question came in, and I'm glad you did a bit of research, because it just proves that it can be a bit subjective. And Well, and I'm also going to say this. Yeah, go ahead. I was looking at the FAQs Mm -hmm. on their website. Mm -hmm. I have now downloaded their 52-page guidebook 
uh, last updated 2017. And I am now putting finish into that. Here we go, here we go. So this is from their booklet now that you can download from their website. What is meant by the term finishing? Finishing is an extension of the maturation process hmm. or secondary maturation. <laughs> when the spirit is subsequently filled into empty casks that previously mm -hmm. held other wines or spirits for a further relatively short period. And then it just repeats, the cask used for finishing must have been drained of any liquid part it's used in any change in the spirit will therefore result from its interaction over time with the wood of the cask. There mm. you go. That's from their guidebook that you can download on their website. So there you go. That's terrific. Huh. Terrific. Yeah. This is a good little booklet. I highly recommend anybody go get it. Uh, Scotch-whiskey.org.uk and then, uh, yeah, look under, I don't know what I clicked on, publications maybe, but downloadable right there. Beautiful. Finishing is vague and clear as mud. I like it. I love yep. it. There yep. you go. Yeah, Gives that works. plenty of room. Cool. Who was uh, that? That was Balancer? Yeah, thanks uh, for that yeah, question, yeah, Balancer. That yeah. was a cracker. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, do, you, do you want to read the next one from yeah, I'll, Chris, I'll, Christian Madsen? Yeah, so earlier on I mentioned having kind of tangential relationships with people mm -hmm. who are listeners of the podcast. And and this actually comes from Christian Madsen, who spent a fair few years, uh, three years to be precise, at Jack Rose in D.C. And uh, he writes a very, very nice email just loving the podcast. He's been a bartender for 17 years and uh, clearly at Jack Rose, great, great education. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can actually, I was looking up um, Christian Madsen to see his face. I looked him up online and uh, USA Today has his recipe for an old fashioned and it's a That's video. Brilliant. Yeah, you can oh watch gosh. Christian making the old fashioned at Jack Rose Dining Saloon. Yeah. Uh, yes, yeah, terrific. Just do a Google Christian, Madsen, Jack Rose, and old fashioned, and you'll get to see them. It's really well worth your time. So I'm going to skip over all the wonderfully kind words he had to say. Yeah, as I was reading it, you know, <laughs> the, my head was just expanding with the ego. And uh, I almost, I fell over. I almost, well, I almost fell over, but yeah, then we got to the, Here, get, let, let, get to the nitty gritty. Well, actually, I'm just, I'm just going to give just a little synopsis because I think he, he does a lovely little synopsis here on some of our releases here. During his time at, at Jack Rose, he got to experience the recent Port Charlotte 14 year old that was simply divine, mm -hmm. uh, left him heartbroken. He didn't snag a bottle. Wild turkey pick, stunning. Uh, Jubilee bottle being his favorite, which I would assume would have to be the New York, the, the first wild turkey bottling okay. uh, for New York Jubilee. Uh, the light whiskey from MGP was a crowd pleaser, even with all that heat, which we love our high alcohol in our MGP releases. Yep. Uh, he's now in Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. Uh, I'm used to saying Houston Texans, which is the football team. And he goes on to say, enough with the ass kicking in intros. And ass here's kissing. my question. Was it kicking or kissing? Kissing. What did I say? Yeah, you said ass kicking. Oh, did I? Like he wasn't giving a shit. He was saying <laughs> nice things. <laughs> I'm just used to having my ass kicked instead of kissed. So he says, uh, here's my question. How in the world do the flavors from the 60s and early 70s Bowmore come to fruition? Mm. Simply stunning whiskey. 
I recently had a 1966 Duncan Taylor 40-year-old with mango pith and peach all over it. Wow. It not only is my favorite whiskey I've ever had, it pretty much redirected my favorite spirit from bourbon to single malt. Oh, God bless Duncan Taylor. There you go. There you go. Well yeah. done, Shandy. Yeah. And Pete Curry. Yeah. I have I have heard from people uh, who drank Bowmore at that time uh, that those flavors were not present, which only means that time and cash brought out some of sort of lovely esters mm-hmm. uh, that uh, youthful bottling would not divulge or release. Yeah, sure. Uh, are there any theories to why or what was done in production to produce this amazing whiskey? Or is it lost to forgotten production methods and impossible maturation times? Yeah, yeah. Here is a, a time where we had to, to reach out to our friend Ali Chilton, uh, Master Blender for Port Askeg. He's been on the podcast before. He is a Bowmore fanatic. Hmm. Part of the reason why I call him a Bowmore fanatic is he's got an understanding of what was going on in Bowmore from decade to decade to decade. So I figured he might have some insight. Super. I would add in, before I get to Ollie's answer, which we received this morning, I would add in something that we learned from Ollie, which is in some of these older whiskeys, especially if the cask was a bit short, right? If you're losing volume, liquid volume in your cask, you have the propensity of oxygen doing a bit more of the heavy lifting that the oak wouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. And that sort of light, fruity quality that we found in some older Glenn Farklesses and some other other bottlings, he kind of attributes that to to oxygen doing some heavy lifting there. Mm -hmm. And so you'll find that in older bottlings. Oh, and nice so, to have nice yeah. to have oxidation in older scotch to link us to our oxidation in sherry that we've been discussing. Right? Yeah. Lovely. So let, but let's see what Ollie said. Yeah. First off, Ollie, thank you for answering the question. This is, we needed you. We desperately needed you. Yeah, he never gets back to us this quickly, so he must really like Obo more. No, he, he likes me. No one likes you. <laughs> <laughs> You just stay in um, your place, Han. Stay in my lane. Uh, so, stay in your lane, bro. <laughs> so he says, tropical flavors appear in lots of whiskeys pre-distiller's yeast. So there's a good chance that yeast and fermentation times play a large part in this. They would also be running the still slower at that time. And certainly there's a change in Bowmore in the 80s, which from some anecdotal evidence of those who were working at the time uh, was down to the stills being driven a lot harder. Mm. In regards to younger bottled whiskey around of the same vintages, the fruit flavors are very apparent with the brown, dumpy bottlings of the late 70s and early 80s, a fantastic example. These are also bargains compared to your black Bowmore, etc. Hope this helps. So that's interesting. So you have a different yeast. You've got a brewer's yeast, which we've had discussions of Ben Nevis in the past, right? Where Ben Nevis has been using brewer's yeast up until the past three or four years or so. And there's a reason why their whiskeys are so fruity, so tropical. And so if Bomore was using a brewer's yeast rather than a distiller's yeast, that will obviously change the overall 
flavor profile. But it's also telling to me. Um, and let me ask. Yeah, please. Well, let me add this. Yeah, please. Fermentation time, right? So if you're allowed the opportunity for a longer fermentation period, that gives you the chance to have a fruitier, more floral whiskey. And I'll use the example, and we've used this before, of Kilhoman, where by comparison to Ardbeg, which has a much shorter fermentation period, which I think is 54 to 60 hours or so, and Kilhoman is 90 to 120 hours, and they're starting off with the same barley, the same peated malted barley from Port Ellen. Part of the reason why Kilhoman is a lighter, more fruity style of whiskey is that longer fermentation period. And they really attribute that to their fermentation, that fruity style. So it makes sense. You take that and compare it to what what Ollie is saying here, that longer fermentation time would allow you for a fruitier whiskey. Yeah, yeah, yep. It's also interesting to hear about stills, right? How one Mm. is running one's stills. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last week... When pouring our Kregeliki, and I'm talking about worm tubs, I'm talking about that slower, um, slower time for condensation, right? To 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 go from vapor back to liquid uh, in a worm tub rather than a condensing tube. And then you think about stills running slowly. When you run a still slowly, you allow oils to build up within the distillate. When you keep your stills hot and run them fast, you lose those oils. We talk about 1980s Laphroaigs that don't look anything like 21st century Laphroaigs now. Yeah, uh, Laphroaigs yeah. become much more minerally and pebbly, uh, like licking a, a seashore pebble. It's interesting to hear Beaumore from 60s, 70s, slower run still, slower mm-hmm. fermentation. Mm-hmm. You allow those flavors to come out in the distillate as opposed to just running pure distillation constantly. Right, um, right, right. And kind of, I don't want to say not too concerned about what's coming out the other end, but I think one of the beautiful aspects of whiskey is that you can taste it within historical context. You can talk about boom and bust periods. You can talk about times when, you know, we've done it in this podcast already. Johnny Walker Red had good malts going into it because there was no place to sell the booze. Uh, We can talk about 60s and 70s Bowmore's taste in a particular way because there were slower decades. Uh, 80s, it started to ramp up production. Laphroaig, uh, you can track it through the early 2000s. They ramped up production. Like, what a spirit that you're, you know, we talk about distilleries having house styles. Mm -hmm. They don't. They they have context-driven flavors. You know, we, yes. we, we can't yeah. talk about, well, Bowmore tastes like this in a vacuum because there's never been a vacuum, right? It's always had an historical context to it. And people like key decades. You know, we, we've talked about this previously. 1976, uh, Ben Riach. Ben Riach. Oh, my gosh. Right? Yes. Is, is like drinking a rainbow of flavors. It's unbelievable. It's, you know, bright, sunny day flavors. Absolutely wonderful. Um, last week, uh, Chris Udi, uh, I, I did a tasting at the Village Idiot last Tuesday, and uh, Chris Udi, who's uh, co-owner of Impex and, and JVS, 
He's talking about our Invergarden from 1974 and saying 74 was an incredible year in whiskey. Some mm-hmm. of the best flavors in whiskeys exist in 1974. And people are saying, why? Why was 1974 such a good year? Well, some people, like 1976, talk about it being a good summer. It was good barley. It was good grain. It was good basic ingredients. It was also between the 60s and the 80s. And so the industry was kind of reinventing itself, coming back Mm -hmm. to the fore Mm -hmm. again. And things were made slowly and carefully, like we're hearing about 60s and 70s, but more. So what a rich historical context for consuming a spirit. Yeah, I, I, I would say too, with the 70s, people started... They, they had this crazy idea where they said, I, I wonder if we change our wood management program, what that would do to our whiskey. And all of a sudden, you know, they're starting to put whiskey in slightly better wood, slightly yeah. different wood. You know, it's still taken the 70s, the 80s, even the 90s for many distilleries to kind of catch on to this idea. But like you had said, people, Distillers are starting to reinvent themselves. Business is kicking back up. You know, what do we do to uh, to make this a more appealing drink for people? Well, w- what are your options? You've got grain, you've got yeast, you've got fermentation time, you have mashing. How do you distill it? What type of wood you're using? Yep. Etc. Et and this is where they started paying attention. And, you know, there'd be some people that would say, oh, you know, but these old bottlings from the 50s and the 60s, why why are those so great compared to bottlings of today, which aren't as great? And I would argue and say, first off, there were amazing 60s whiskeys, no doubt about it, amazing 70s whiskeys. The fact of the matter is right now we don't have a chance to drink a lot of that, and I'm not the only one to say this. There was far more bad whiskey back then than there was <laughs> good whiskey back then. But the ones that were good were so good. Yeah. And whiskeys nowadays are just more consistently good, which is kind of a nice thing with wood management program, with good barley, with, you know, you name it. But yeah, it was nice to get a bit of an answer from, from Ollie. It's nice to get you laughing at me. As I try to wrap this up, I um, I had to I had to revisit there our okay. Port Charlotte in okay. in uh, first fill all in all. I get this wrong every single time. Look oh, at the, I'm right. Look at me. Look at the color. I know it's first fill. I know, but hey, <laughs> come on, we've seen some refills that put some nice color into some whiskeys. So. That's a good point. That's a good yeah, point. yeah. I had to revisit the first fill Oloroso, and and again that Oloroso top note is there. Given the big char on it, given the big peat on it, mm-hmm. uh, there's nowhere near as much Oloroso across the palate. There's also nowhere near as much on the nose as there is the Fino in the Glen Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, holy moly, if that's not a cracking whiskey. Uh, the other reason I bring it up now is that tasting I was just mentioning with Chris Udi uh, last week at the Village Idiot uh, was actually put on by the Southern California Whiskey Club, uh, yeah. uh, headed by Michael Reese. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Bozzy, who we've made mention of on our, our podcast previously, mm-hmm. uh, Bozzy actually brought his one and only bottle of Port Charlotte 14 Single Cast Nation to share with the larger group as wow. I was doing a single cast nation tasting. 
This yeah. was a bottling that was yeah. one per person. And he brought his bottle to share with a larger group. That's incredibly generous. Wasn't that, uh, yeah, I wanted to tell you that, but I wanted to tell you that in front of our listeners because that to me speaks to the Single Cast Nation membership. They are in it to share. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, and I did report this to you separately, but I did also tell them at that, at that tasting, because so many of them are original uh, founding members of Single Cast Nation, that we have implemented the policy of banning members who flip our stuff. Everybody in the group, those who are familiar with us, those who are hearing about us for the first time, said that is brilliant. That is absolutely fantastic. Uh, protecting your drinkers is wonderful to hear. And it was it was a yeah. great thing. It was a really, really great thing to hear from people who are kind of like, yeah, please, please let us drink. And then to have Bozzy there who says, hell, let us drink together. Let's sup from the communal cup, metaphorically yeah. speaking. Yeah, you know, someone had asked me a question. I forget who it was, uh, but he said, you know, what if, what if someone buys a bottle of your whiskey? <laughs> Every intention to, to open it, mm-hmm. to share it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then two years down the road, three years down the road, uh-huh. falls into financial straits <laughs> and needs to, needs to sell it. And so I thought that, that 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 was an interesting question. It's an interesting hypothetical. Well, it is an interesting hypothetical. And it reminds me of what I had to do to ensure that my cat, Angus, Colonel Angus, uh, as, as we lovingly call him, Colonel Angus, uh, I had to save his life and bring him to the vet, vet and pay a few thousand dollars to make that happen. And the only way that I could do that was by... Uh, privately selling a couple of bottles that I meant to open at a bat mitzvah or a college graduation or something like this. And I had been sitting on the bottle for a few years. And so I said, well, you know, that I can understand a bit more just because I've been through that. But what we've dealt with and the people that we've banned are people who purchase with the sole intention of flipping. There is a big difference between the two. At the end of the day, this is always going to be an inexact science. Uh, We are are adults selling whiskey to other adults. And every adult lives their own life. (laughs) And there may very well come a moment when somebody hits financial straits and needs a little boost up and is lucky to have some quality bottles that they can sell to get a bit of money, just as you explain. Yeah. yeah. You know, and will it be within our purview to decide, do we ban that person? Do we not ban that person? You know, that's the trouble for me with hypotheticals. This situation might never arise. This situation might arise multiple times. As we have always done to this point, we will do our very best to handle it even-handedly and like the gentleman that we are. Yeah, and with the thought in mind always of protecting our members who are drinkers and sharers first and foremost. Exactly. Should we give the floor over to to Ford Ray here? Speaking of top quality members. Yes, yeah. So Ford Ray asks us, without giving away any future news related to your 2019 plans for Single Cast Nation, 
what are you both most excited about in 2019 as it relates to the growth of Signal Cast Nation? And and someone, by the way, and I think it was Tim Mushaw, and that was a that was a Facebook question. I think it was Tim Mushaw who chimed in. He said, "No, no, no! Don't listen to him. Give away all the news. <laughs> Tell us everything." <laughs> um, well, I feel like we answered it a little bit when you and I were looking forward to 2019 as the year turned from from 18 to 19, mm-hmm. and we closed out 18 and, and looked to open up 19. Yeah. Uh, clearly UK European expansion is, is huge for us, absolutely huge in 2019 and making that a reality is, is going to take a lot of work. Um, yeah. So, so that's, that's big. I would say, and it kind of echoes a little something that was discussed earlier in this episode, bringing out a 30-year-old Beaumont, uh, bringing out an older Imperial. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the names not added to that is a Clint Lish, uh, which yeah. you and I have loved for many a year. Uh, having a Clint Lish to call our own is really exciting. Two, a nine-year-old and a 23, almost 24-year-old. <laughs> um. Yeah. So so that's that's rather remarkable and and I would I would even go one more step and say the release of whiskies that we haven't even met yet excites me in 2019. Huh. I guess that's fair. I I, I usually don't even think about it that way, but it's I do like those surprises, right? That Absolutely. surprise where all of a sudden imperial is offered to us. Holy exactly. cow. Right? I, you know, when, when we had the 28-year-old Buna Haben offered to us two, three years back, you know, it's that these things that you don't anticipate, that's when, when a Port Charlotte 14 and first Phil Oloroso yeah. appears in your inbox in the second half of a year that you were not planning your year around. I'm going to add in something a bit different. And, mm-hmm. and I have to be a bit squirrely about the details because you don't want to give too much away here. But Understood. Are, right? Uh, but we are looking to introduce a line of whiskeys that is not single cask related. It is single malts. It is potentially other types of whiskeys. But this is going to be a, a really nice line of whiskeys priced incredibly well. Charmers, wonderful, just quaffable whiskeys that are meant for sharing, that are meant to be good session whiskeys. And this plan that we devised to to come out with this line, I think no one's really doing it in the manner that we're doing it. And the packaging has got me so incredibly excited. Oh, it's so freaking good. I think the packaging has me more excited than anything. I'm just but, uh, watching you just gingerly creep up to the edge <laughs> of the cliff without either jumping off or falling off. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's tough because I want to get I want to uh, jump head first. Uh, but I gotta keep it there. We have to be squirrely about uh, the whole project. We can't give any details. But this line of whiskeys I think it's going to be great, A, for whiskey geeks, whiskey lovers, but also people looking to just get into whiskey. Uh, whiskey's at good, fair prices. You really went the Tim Mushaw line on that one. You really 
said, ah, here, let's give away some secrets. <laughs> it's, let's yeah, open. Some. I also love the fact that it's buried, you know, a couple of hours into a mail, <laughs> mail <Yeah>. bag episode. <laughs> like, this is a real little acorn buried away uh, for those listeners mm-hmm. uh, who listen closely and intently yeah. Uh, and make it all the way to the longest of long episodes. Mm, so mm. enjoy your acorn, listeners. <laughs> uh, I think we should leave it there. We, so you're right. We've been recording for two hours. We'll see how much editing I do. Yeah, there's a, there's uh, a number of a number of broken little spots there. Yeah. Going off to the bathroom, going for more whiskey. Yeah. So let's close it out, Joshua. By turning the floor over to our old friend, James Foster, who, as you and I are recording this podcast, mm-hmm. is in deepest, darkest, on-fire Tasmania. Oh, really? Yeah, he had he'd previously reached out to us for some recommendations on where to go, what to see in Tasmania. Uh, the and devil. Uh, the Tasmanian devil is uh, mm-hmm. high on anybody's list. Mm-hmm. And... And so as he's wont to do, uh, he'd reached out to us about another recommendation. In the absence of the Jubilee, which he had attended in Seattle, he had attended in Chicago, he had unfortunately that, never, yeah, never made it. Yeah, it wasn't New York. He unfortunately had never made it out to New York. Um, he says, okay, to get real... <laughs> <laughs> He's such an easygoing guy. Foster getting real over email. Let's take it seriously. Yeah. Can you recommend similar festivals to the Mothballed Jubilee? My favorite aspects of the Jubilee were fun, not snooty. Some I've looked at have dress code for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> that always drove me nuts. Go on. Yes. Knowledgeable people at the tables. No models, mm-hmm. very good food, funky venues. I hate yuppie posh. <laughs> <laughs> Wide variety of vendors. Uh-huh. <laughs> Jason and Joshua are always there, along with lots of people I know. <laughs> and fun ancillary events. So those were all the things he liked about the Jubilee. And in the absence of it... Uh, what could we recommend to him and fellow yeah. listeners who were tremendous supporters of the, the Jubilee as well yeah. uh, that would get them a similar experience? You know, it's funny. <laughs> Reading this or hearing you read this, it reminds me of a few, time, few times people would come to us, exhibitors, attendees, and multiple times, I should say, and they say... How is it how is it the Jubilee is so different from every other event? How are you doing this? And and Foster gave a wonderful laundry list of things that we focused on. No models. It has to be good food. Uh, kosher food too, right? Which which was important to us. And we had this idea of let's do a whiskey jubilee week event. And I wouldn't say that that was necessarily unique to us. I think uh, as an example, Whiskey Fest a few years back, right? They did those wonderful Saturday morning seminars, which were some of the best that we'd ever been to. And I would argue and say those were ancillary events to the, to the 
festival itself. Correct. But it just goes to show that, as far as I'm aware, there are no other shows where that it was ticking these boxes that, you know, that we always aimed for, but didn't necessarily put names to what we were aiming for. Does that make sense? In a way, I'm, I'm just surprised you you say we didn't put names to what we were looking for. Uh, not not compl- as as I go down this list, right? He's saying funky venues. You know, we wanted a nice venue that wasn't a hotel conference room that's just dry, dead, uninteresting, right? So we'd look for something kind of kind of cool, uh, fun, not snooty. We always targeted more knowledgeable than than anything. Correct. We didn't want snooty, Correct. right? Correct. Correct. Yeah, the dress codes that that's always bugged me. Whiskey's meant to be fun. It's not meant for <laughs> you know white guys and old white guys and blazers. It's meant for everybody. Yeah, I remember. I I'm not going to name names, but I I went to an uh, an event. Uh, uh, a whiskey festival in Seattle at a private club. Mm-hmm. And I wore corduroys. And and I remember being stared at walking into this private club for this festival with corduroys on in Seattle. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what is happening right now? Yeah. They're corduroys. So, yeah, and that so yeah for the jubilee, the idea of a dress code, no, thank you. I guess we did think about this stuff, and I guess that we 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 aimed at it. I just, I guess, so many years into it, we don't think about it anymore, right? And that's the thing. It's lovely to see Foster's email that we were known for it, without us after we'd kind of invented it, thinking about it each time. Having said that, we have said in the podcast many, 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 many times that the no models policy would be broken by at least one exhibitor at each and every jubilee. And it would drive us bonkers and we would have immediate feedback to the brand that what they were doing was not cool. And the next time they would have somebody else fill out the paperwork and they would commit the same error again. So, (laughs) so yeah, you know, that dirty look that you got wearing corduroys Mm -hmm. uh, at that event, that's the same look that models would get from our attendees and the same look that we would get. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And the same look that I would give to the models is like, no, that is not what this event is about. Every other event has good looking women and tiny little dresses or really good looking guys in nice suits. And that is for a different kind of gala than, than we ever meant to have. So to answer his question, are there, (laughs) are there similar festivals that do this? And in the U S I would say, no, I can't think of a single one. Can you? Uh, I'm, and, and looking over his question, I'm not thinking about checking every box. I'm thinking yeah, about getting back to what really drove you and I, which was whiskey focus and educated consumer. Mm-hmm. And I would say the Binnie's Whiskies of the World yes. in Chicago mm-hmm. is a big one for 
the sheer number of industry people that you have behind tables. I, I haven't had a chance to walk that festival. I've only been there as somebody who worked uh, behind the, the Impex table. But I don't recall seeing a lot of models wandering around there. No, not at all. And, and the reason for that, and this is one of the reasons I like that event, and another reason I like the Julio's event that happens, it's their Go Whiskey weekend that happens every February, which sadly um, hmm. I'm missing this year. Uh, sadly because, you'll be missing because you're in Scotland. <laughs> that's, that's the case. Mm-hmm. Is you have these major events that are happening in stores where buying decisions are being made. And in this case, I think brands are better off having knowledgeable whiskey folk who can talk about the whiskey that people, they say, I like this, can you tell me more about it? This way I'll make the purchase rather than, hey, there's a pretty girl or hey, there's a good looking guy and and taste it. And I have walked both events and I would say- As you're and, prone to do, Joshua? Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, the There are more brand direct slash knowledgeable whiskey folk at those types of events. And I'm sure that there are more, but those two, the Binnie's one and the Julio's one, are the first to come to mind. Is there another one? Vine and Table in Indiana. Uh, yes. I, yeah, I haven't been table. yet, but I've, I'm hearing a lot of good things about it. It's definitely on my radar. Yeah, and, and uh, Dennis, Dennis Lynch over yes. there at Vine and Table does a fin. I've been to the, have you been to the shop? No, nope. Yeah. Never, nope. I don't think I've yeah. ever been to Indiana. I, I ticked that off my, uh, off my box list uh, two years ago. There you go. And, and now there are only six U.S. states I haven't been to. Okay. And they're most mostly the ones that have a, a history of, of hating Jews. So I, I kind of stay away from from that. Checks out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jews and, and other folk that aren't white. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, so so I would say if there are big store events, stores that are known for having a good whiskey selection or known that known to be whiskey centric, there's a good chance that those might tick off that. Are you going to have a conversation with knowledgeable whiskey folk box? Yeah, it's you and I said it in the episode where we talked about the the mothballing of the Jubilee. We firmly believe that we're going to see more of these types of events taking off around the United States. It's going to be more like Vine and Table, more like Binnie's Whiskies of the World, more like Julio's Go Whiskey Weekend. Given that that's Massachusetts, Illinois, and Indiana, I think there's a ton of room for growth there. And it'll be really interesting to watch that take off. And from a brand perspective... You know, whether it's single cast nation for us or, you know, if if we're putting on the Impex hat and it's Kilhoman or Pandaren or Tipperary or, or any of these brands, a show at a shop where people can make a decision to buy right away is much more appealing than any other show where 
people are just having a good night and you hope that they remember what they tasted and you hope that they go to a shop that will sell them that whiskey. You know, there is there is something called return on investment. Yeah, yeah. And return on investment is brand growth, which I think a lot of festivals allow for, right? You know, that's, I think you're focusing more on brand growth with the the whiskey fests and the whiskey lives of the world and other great shows like those. But when it comes to brand growth slash selling bottles, a show at a shop yeah. is something that's incredibly attractive to us. Yeah, it, it closes the number one loop that anybody selling a brand is looking to close. Yeah, and, and we tried to do it our best with Jubilee. We would partner with... Gramercy Wine and Spirits in New York. We'd partner with Warehouse and with Binnie's in Chicago and then Downtown Spirits in Seattle. And they would give discounts and they would, you know, do their best to say, hey, if you like this stuff here, come and visit our shops. And, and, you know, all of them had said they'd gotten business because of the show. And that's the reason that they return. But you can't always guarantee that. Yeah. Right. So. Joshua. Joshua. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Jason. Yes. Let's give a thanks to everybody who took the time to email in. Do we thank the people who didn't email in? I think so. Okay. <laughs> because I think the other listeners would be thanking the other people who did not email in. Yes, they would. Or this could be a six-hour episode. Uh, and who's got time for that? So Ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. We received the right number of emails, and if we perhaps misplaced your own question, or we never got to it, or we didn't say it, um, I do apologize. Yeah. But we covered what we thought was the right number of questions, and... uh, no, no, no questions from female whiskey fans this time around. Which from is what whiskey fans? Female whiskey fans, non-male whiskey fans. Oh, oh, the non-male ones. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> didn't quite know how else to say female. Um, well, I did. I didn't. The, I did it. Blah, blah, when blah. you said when you said female whiskey fans, I was putting the first word and whiskey together. So you know how you'd say bourbon whiskey, scotch whiskey, rye whiskey, Indian whiskey, Japanese whiskey. American bourbon? I, shut up. <laughs> and I just didn't, I was thinking whatever that word was before a whiskey was a specific type of whiskey. Have you been drinking you were, on an empty stomach during this episode? So I'm doing smoothies for <laughs> breakfast and lunch. Sounds like a yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought you were describing, you know, Funny, we didn't get a question from bourbon fans, right? Or, And so where I was trying to put female and whiskey together, I should have put in... I should Are you have still put explaining female. this? Yes, I'm still fucking explaining it. Because you need to know why I asked the question. You were so drunk. <laughs> I'm not drunk. You're if so I were drunk, drunk... No, 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 no. If I were drunk, I would be telling you that I'm drunk. I'm far from drunk. I'm trying to explain why I couldn't understand what was coming out your mouth. so drunk, listeners. If you could see his eyes right now, they are glazing over. (laughs) (laughs) Little glassy-eyed. 
So <sighs> it has been lovely. It has been. Thank you. As we started the episode, we shall finish. Thank you to the listeners mm-hmm. for all their support over the two years. If you yeah. haven't had a chance to go to the iTunes to give us a little review and a little five-star rating, please do. Mm-hmm. If um, if you just want to go about telling your friends about us, that would be tremendous as well. That uh, would be phenomenal. Uh, yep. Joshua, I, I repeat it early and often, thank you for two wonderful years of editing. It continues Oof. to amaze me uh, bi-weekly after bi-weekly <laughs> um, that you get these turned around despite how insanely busy you are and how often you're on the road, you still get them turned out on time and I greatly appreciate that. My wife and kids don't thank me as much as you do, but you're welcome. Yeah. No one will love you quite <laughs> like I do, Joshua. <laughs> We've made that clear. Oh, but amazing that it's been two full years now. Brilliant. And, uh, Absolutely brilliant. I, I'll tell you what's, what's the other thing that's got me excited for 2019, sort of answering what, what Ford had said, is is this podcast. And we've talked about it before. We've got some live shows that we're looking to do. I'm not going to reveal it right now, but we just got word that some highly awarded whiskey loving actors have agreed to be on this podcast (laughs) and i'm just over the moon because these people in particular i've been hooked like intravenously on uh on a show that they're in now uh it's going to be ending soon sadly um and actually i think it may have ended i'm a bit late to it because i've always just kind of caught up in in streaming but it's got me so excited to, to do another detour where we're talking about the craft of acting along with the craft of, of whiskey and, and see how we can make those sometimes tenuous, albeit fun, links. So I'm really excited about that. And I think our third year of podcasting, we're going to cast a lot of pods. And I'm excited about said pods to be casted. I will cheers to that and here's to season three. Here's to season three. Cheers, homie. Cheers, brother. Do you do you want to tap out a song? Do you have a song that you tap? Do you ever tap? Are you a tapper? No, that's your ADD, not mine. John Tapper? Jack Tapper? Jake right. Jake Tapper? Jake Tapper, that's it. Okay. Go go put some more smoothie in your belly. I need to. I'm hungry. I'm a hungry bear. We did it. We did it. We did it. Yeah. Did you guys not watch uh, Dora the Explorer? I mean, not you, but like your kids. No. No? We didn't have Disney Channel, man. That's not Disney, is it? We didn't have Nickelodeon, man. Did really for for your children? Uh, we were PBS family. Oh, what's on PBS? What did what uh, did you? Not get? Sesame Street. We never watched that with our kids. Um, what would we watch on PBS? Uh, um, yo. Oh, I couldn't do that. That's the stupid penguin. No, that's pe- th- that's Pengu. Yeah, I can't do Pengu. Pengu. What's po- no. what's Pokio? Pokio uh, narrated by Stephen Fry. It's an English-Spanish uh, production. 
Absolutely fantastic. Hmm. Absolutely magnificent. But it's not anime. It's not like Japanimation. Why would I show my kids Japanimation on PBS? I don't know. Why would you? Why are you doing that? <laughs> Dummy. Uh, but Pengu, I, I couldn't do Pengu. Pingu. Yeah, him either. P-I-N-G-U. 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 His name was... Fucking Pingu. Pingu. 